Alrighty, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to Death Apology, brought to you by Radio DePaul. Last week, we had our extra-long show about sugar, courtesy of Rock the Clock, but it's the dawn of a new weekend, and so we are here. Uh, another thanks to everybody who participated. We got about 750 bucks over our goal, which is really quite fantastic. Um, but for this week, we're going to be talking about frozen grief. I think we need to introduce ourselves a little bit more. Yeah, hi guys, it's Jeffrey again. Um, my fun fact of the week is, didn't really think about it, but, oh, oh I am on a big, like, back to my roots and back reading again, so I'm in a book club with my friend. Oh. So, yeah, we're trying to, I'm trying to read more outside of class, so hopefully more fictional books, because all I've been reading is nonfiction, so I just need a break from it. Fair, fair. Um, my name is Misha course i don't know if there's any new listeners tuning in for spring at this point that doesn't really tend to happen but my fun fact is that i got to campus really early to pick up something from the library and learn that they're closed all of easter weekend and i should have checked beforehand yeah um all, also we never do this because you keep forgetting shout out to the international fans because we, ha- we had a couple yeah. last quarter so yeah Shout out to y'all. I do also have another fun fact, but we will save that for the end of the episode. Going into frozen grief, though. It's described by, or the term was coined by, a sociologist named Pauline Boss, and she describes it in her book in 1999 as when outside forces of ambiguity and uncertainty make grief complicated and difficult to work through. It's also known as ambiguous grief and melancholia, and it can be physical or psychological or both. So our example is that if a soldier dies, you're told that they're dead, but you might not uh, see their remains, let alone like have confidence that any of the remains that you get back are the correct ones. So that's a physical ambiguity of like not being able to see the dead person for yourself and make that connection. And then amongst living people, there's the example that I've chosen is that not, that uh, confusion of not knowing if your parents or of knowing that your parents are your parents, but being really emotionally detached from them because they're always too busy with their careers to give emotional attention. Yeah, and what's interesting is Boss kind of revisited this whole concept in 2010 again. And um, I would say they kind of, with their definition, so like with physical absence, with psychological presence, it's a loved one is missing physically. So some examples and the redid version was like lost, kidnapped, disappeared, but they're kept alive psychologically because there is a potential for them to reappear. So examples can range from someone who was lost at sea with no body, like you described in the military, to um to be a divorce because like a divorce is there's a chance of re- you think there could be a chance at reconciliation, which you know we can laugh at, but I've seen that happen. I've actually seen this happen in my life, which is very uh, kind of an adoption. Because, like, maybe you'll re-find your birth parents one day, like, if mm. you do seek that out. Unsolved cases. 
So like you know like there's a body but you don't know what happened to the person. So like how right. can you grieve if you don't if you don't like a lot of people I think justice is necessary also for full grief. Um immigration because like you left part of your heritage or people behind maybe. So like I I can definitely see like all those and then there's physical presence with psychological absence. So a loved one is physically present but they're missing part of themselves psychologically. So examples can range from Alzheimer's disease to dementia to them being in a coma to depression or to hikikomori. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Yeah, and if listeners don't know, it's just like the idea of somebody who stays inside constantly. Yeah, and it's like it's it was coined in Japan because there's a lot of young people who were just shut in into their just their room too. Like they would be they wouldn't even really talk to their parents, and they're just so involved in like technology or their own world. So yeah. And, like, also from her book, she compares frozen grief feelings to the story of Sisyphus. Uh, If you don't know, it's, like, that he's cursed to roll a boulder up a hill, but never quite get it all the way up the hill before it rolls back down. Where, like, some days you might be, like, really close to the top of the hill, like, having a lot of hope, like, no, they'll totally find my loved one's remains, or yeah, we totally have the correct remains or, you know, something along those lines. But eventually it'll just kind of fall back into hopelessness of, like, I don't know where this person is. I don't know, like, if their body is complete. Yeah. Those sort of unnerving feelings. And in that first chapter, she ends it off by describing the family stress perspective which is a set of four assumptions, is that change creates stress and the stress can be overcome. Prolonged stress isn't healthy and it can be managed with help. Information, even if it's complete, is better than no information. And ambiguous grief can result in trauma, but it doesn't always. And these things feel like maybe super obvious to say out loud as like neither of us are currently grieving ambiguous deaths, I don't think. Uh, no. Uh, but, like, when you're actually going through it, it can feel much more impossible to see these. Yeah, I think a common example that a lot of pet owners have faced is, like, if, like, your pet has ever gone in the house and you're, like, you're in the process of trying to find them. And you're, like, and you're in that moment of anything could be happening to them. Like, and you see those, like, pet posters across Chicago. And right. it's, like, you know, like, that's such a hard thing because you want to have hope. But, like... And it's it's that hard thing because you know like the forty eight hour you, everyone's heard of the, like the forty eight hour rule it's like but you're like always well, at hope. I it was twenty four hours. It's it's four I think it's forty eight mm-hmm. but you twenty four like because forty eight's the most critical because then after well I maybe it's for pets but I know forty eight for people. Oh, interesting. Because there's there was a whole show called First Forty Eight Hours about that. Oh. Yeah. I've even seen like really desperate like Craigslist. Oh, like Craigslist? Found oh. And it's mm. really sad. Yeah. yeah. So you may be wondering, how is it different from an ordinary loss or death? So um, Boss in 2010 describes it as, yes, ambiguous loss is qualitatively different from ordinary loss in that the person is still there, but not all there, or the person is physically not there, but their memory still remains. Because And that can happen with ordinary death, but the thing is there's no, you, there's not, wasn't a chance for closure, like an ordinary death. Because there's still like a mystery surrounding it, usually if they're physically um, not there. As a result, there is no possibility of re- resolution or closure. So, 
What often happens is the person is immobilized and isolated from the usual supports, which makes matters worse. Unlike death, with ambiguous loss, so dementia or brain injury, the process of bereavement is blocked by an external situation beyond the control of the sufferers. Even the strongest people are immobilized in such situations. Grief therapies are understandably resisted. Bystanders often show impatience in questioning such resistance by asking, why aren't they over it yet? Or, or the naive queer... The, the, sorry, the naive query, why didn't he cry at his wife's funeral? People may not realize that all of his grieving was done along the way a very long illness. Death, w with its clarity, can actually bring relief. Yeah. One of the books that I started to read for this episode, actually, I'm at about the halfway point uh, as it stands right now, is called No Time to Say Goodbye, and it's about... Uh, deaths by suicide and we probably should have put a warning at the beginning of this episode um, but either way she mentions how in one of the studies that she was looking into like she started like looking into the research really heavily as like coping mechanism and one of the studies said that like usually the second year of grief is harder than the first mm. I thought that was really interesting but it's also that like suicide brings so much uncertainty too it's a part of this category whereas if you have like a relative who's on hospice you you know what's going to happen pretty clearly yeah anyways another thing that boss talks about is oh no sorry not boss duong in 2021 was describing how during the pandemic how a lot of healthcare workers like part of the grieving process for healthcare worker is you do get attached like you do like get to know your patients when you're with them. Like there's the physical touch, there's physical assurance. You can physically talk to the patient's family. And during the pandemic, that was not possible because there were just so many people and you know loved ones. Like only one could be there at a time, or at some points there was no like person who could be there with them. So it made like calling families to tell their loved one they died through the phone was really helped. Right. And they, were, and they even talked about, like, some of the employees said it felt like we were treating the illness first, not the patient. And that, like, they, they just started to become numbers to them because they, they didn't have time to get to know their names or talk to them because they were just so, and they were understaffed. There were so many people. So it was hard to grieve them because, like, before they had clarity because they got to know them or what their wants for death were, but everything was happening so quick. So I do think it's interesting. Like, you have to also think about with frozen grief is those, like, Dot, those jobs with high death rates like the how the how they build resiliency to like to those like you think of like people who work on oil rigs or like lumberjacks have high death rates or like any of those jobs where it's just because we often think of soldiers or police officers but it's also just like those jobs we don't talk about like lumberjacks coal miners i remember being told like in the pre-internet days uh that the toll booth workers along the highways had a really high suicide rate like I'm not sure how true it is anymore or even if there are people who like still attend to the toll booths along the highway like anymore or if it's all automated but I remember thinking that was really scary because my grandma would say that whenever we were on the highway mm. driving past them but we are uh, we are already at our halfway point which is kind of nutty but you are going to hear a brief ad and then a song and for this week i've chosen soldier side by system of a down because i've been going through all their discography lately and 
yeah anyways hope you enjoy soldier side by system of a down i was debating if that was a little too on the nose or not but i just i don't know i like it and i've been going through like that like between winter and spring moodiness like it's really particular yeah you know yeah also while we're back we didn't um at the beginning we kind of should have probably done a bit of uh, trigger warning thing, so we're going to do it now. And then we're also, for our replay listeners on Spotify and other streaming, we're going to replay this at the beginning. So caution for this episode, if you're um, grieving an ambiguous loss or you're like just facing someone who has like a, like a really bad, um, like maybe in a coma, or you don't have closure on someone in your life, or like the topic of suicide or other things could potentially trigger you, this may not be the episode for you. So please feel free to click on another episode or just wait for us next week. Yep, and I also want to make the the very clear distinction that we aren't experts. We aren't therapists. We aren't psychologists. Yeah, we're not one of those TikTok people that's going to psychoanalyze you. No. We don't have all of the answers here. No. Um, so if you're looking for, like, better sources, I would maybe direct you to, like, our sources page or even beyond yeah. that. Please don't use better help. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, m- moving into moving back into the episode, though, we wanted to discuss some of the ways in the book that were described to sort of work through or to begin to work through ambiguous losses. Mm-hmm. And it starts with the notion that Americans love having concrete answers to things, and we like to believe that the world is fair and that things happen in a linear fashion. Yeah. And that is not how the world works, even though, like, change constantly happens whether it's in our control or not. And no matter what, we're not great at adapting to it. And that's maybe not necessarily just, like, an American thing. It might just be, like, a broader, like, change is hard thing. Um, I would agree. I also think a lot of people, because it's, like, we're all take life from our perspective so whenever something happens a lot of us feel like part of it is our fault like for everything like if something happens to someone else like it take it's hard on us because we're seeing that from our perspective even though it has nothing to do with us like we sometimes it's hard to just blame it on life because you're you're trying to find if you can't blame it on something like concretely people either blame it on the person it happened to or blame it on themselves unfairly when it's just how life is yeah and that is kind of like the Catholic guilt of being American is mm. part of it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but one of the things that she kind of mentions is that tension in like anthropological thinking of who's at the wheel here. Is it humans? Is it nature? Or is it like a deity or deities? You know? Yeah. And she found that people who tend to be more spiritual do have an easier time dealing with ambiguous deaths. Whereas... Like, people who really want to believe that humanity is so in control of everything have a much harder time. Yeah, and they also sh- um, she also describes it as, like, America is a can-do society that championships the triumph over adversity. And so people think, like, death is, like, black and white. So then ambiguous loss comes, it's kind of like a shade of gray is how I would describe it. This is my own words. And a lot of people, because they like to see black or white, like, graying things is hard for them to digest or talk about. And, like, when you're talking about, um, like, people who have faith, it's, like, a lot of people who focus solely on logic 
thing is ambiguous locked loss doesn't work just on logic it's like a gradual thing that doesn't just happen you know it's it's a slow like it's a slow process and it's constant grieving so like um, boss describes it instead of seeking closure we should help the people we serve and ourselves to become more tolerant of the still open door learning to hold a paradox helps that someone we love can be both absent and present at the same time yeah and i this plays into like perfectionist tendencies which i also feel like is very american but not only american yeah it's very east asian as well mm. yeah but even seasoned professionals are st- uh, are stumped by ambiguous loss a veteran therapist whose husband had an accident and was severely brain injured asked passionately how is it possible to lose half of a person half is dead half remains alive the uncanny story violates the observer's trust in reality life may then deceived by promising substance and delivering ghost, the doppelganger at the dinner table. And another experienced therapist felt that the seeming canniness about, like, oh yeah, the uh, do- doppelganger at the dinner table, I got repeated for some reason in my notes, but uh, that is interesting because, you know, like, when you think about someone who is suffering from dementia or, you know, it's it's physically the same person, like, you know, it is the same person, but, like, memories, like, those connections you used to have, they, like, they wither over time. You know, so like and like with dementia, like I said, with someone with dementia, it's ambiguous grief. Um, instead of thinking and grieving, it's done. You have to mourn like every little loss as it happens. So like every everything that they lose control of. You know, it's okay to grieve. You don't have to grieve everything at once because some people are like, oh, they're already dead because it's like once it once they get diagnosed because I know how it's gonna end. But like that's not healthy because the person you know you're still gonna have to face them. And if you just think like that. Then when it finally does happen, like, when they do pass, you know, you didn't really grieve. There's probably going to be some regret because you didn't grieve along the way. So, like, we're going to get into this later, but I think I can say this now because this is what the same dimension topic is. One of the advice Boss gave to someone was the um, the author who we're citing a lot here. Um, There was someone who had a husband with dementia, and they they were still lucid. Like, it wasn't, it just started. And she said, you should say goodbye soon while they're still lucid. Like, I'm not saying mourn them. What I'm saying is while they're still here, say everything you want to say to them while they while they will remember it. Right. And there's a few guidelines that we we're going to go through that she proposes when facing complicated losses. And the first is finding meaning. Because making sense of what is happening can be really difficult. Uh, many people believe that meaning and hope can't exist without each other. So part of Boss's guidelines is trying to find that meaning with the gradual loss over time. And that works best in a dialogue-focused like peer group where your cultural beliefs and attitudes and values will discuss resilience and block resiliency and change from happening. Often it's like our family and our traditions that block our ability to deal with an ambiguous loss. Yeah, the next guideline is tempering mastery. So to counteract hopelessness, it is helps to think of a both and mindset. For example, he is both here and not here. And I am both a daughter and the parent to my parent. Like if you're, care- you're the caregiver to your parent. Tempering mastery means synthesizing the extremes ideas of one, insisting on the status quo, nothing is wrong. And two, yearning for closure, my mom is dead to me. Neither idea promotes resilience. 
So instead, the idea is to be comfortable with shades of gray. It's accepting that the world isn't kind and being comfortable with what can what we can and cannot control. So mastering is instead accepting that the environment is what it is and that we can only control who we are and like our individual like hobbies and bettering ourselves. Oh, that's Hegel, isn't it? Thesis antithesis synthesis. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, <laughs> um, this also kind of reminds me of when we did our, um, gosh, that episode on like corporate corporations, yeah. like not giving people enough bereavement leave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this sort of plays back into that because with complicated grief, it's like even harder to get back into routine. But the third is reconstructing identity, letting go of an absolute identity and instead being more flexible. As one becomes a caregiver, for example, we may have to start taking a parental role for our parents, leading to your family dynamics being blurred and changing. Quote, we become more aware of our uniqueness and cultural identity, especially if forced to change what we have been doing before we became a caregiver. We gradually broaden our roles and routines to become a decision maker, problem solver, and head of household. In reconstructing one's identity, we uncover assumptions about our own as well as the community's identity. Stigma and discrimination may block change in identity, even if that means one cannot do the work needed now that there is illness in the family. End quote. Uh, so number one is normalizing ambivalence. So ambiguous... Ambivalent? Yes. No, it's amb- ambivalence. But like... Amb- so like ambiguous loss like ambivalent is like ambiguous they're like synonym words ambivalence yeah so so ambiguous loss often leads to mixed emotion for example if a person has dementia the caregiver's emotions can range from anger to joy to wish for them to keep living and a wish for the pain to end for the person so this is um this is best management discussing negative emotions in your peer group so you're not acting on them unconsciously this is often cited as one of the most important steps for caregivers to ki- so they can continue to build their resilience. And many people like um, said like dark humor helps with them because like dark humor works best if you're actually in the situation. Mm. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Um, the fourth is revisiting attachment. Frozen loss attachment is often no longer reciprocal or balanced. While affection and communication altered, strong attachment still remains. For someone with dementia, a boss actually told her patient, the caregiver, to say goodbye to her husband while he was still lucid, as we mentioned earlier, so she wouldn't have regrets. And she ended up being thankful for the advice. And the goal of revising is to celebrate what's still possible with the person and grieving what is no longer possible. And it's to like not fully disconnect, but to balance new connections with the same person. Yeah. And uh, discovering hope. So boss says that building human community, learning that bad things happen to good people, and realizing resilience to both con- continue continuity and change will lead to hope to still foster, like we can still foster hope for people. This can be found in religion, the arts, exercise, or whatever um, brings you joy. Yeah, I know one of the specific examples in the book, and I'll have to rush through this, is that the head of the household couldn't carve the Thanksgiving turkey anymore. And so instead of, like, there was one year where they just canceled Thanksgiving altogether, but then the next year they carved the turkey in the kitchen and gave it to the head of the household so he could still pass it around. Yeah. And so it's just like you have to change the routine 
even if that's difficult, rather than just completely shutting it down. Anyways, uh, another thing from the book, and this is what we'll leave off on, is like the last point of the eighth chapter, making sense out of ambiguity. And she mentions that no matter what, humans are going to continually make meaningful connections with one another, which inevitably like heightens the risk of bad things happening in general, with tragic things you know, being a smaller circle within the big circle of potential bad things. Um, but I think that's a good note to leave off on, like the idea that risk can be worth it. We still need connections. Yeah, so I on. completely agree. So thank, thank you guys for listening to Deaf Apology brought to you by Radio Paul. I've been Jeffrey. And I have been Misha. So feel free to check out our social medias. On Instagram, Tumblr, at Jeffropology, D-E-A-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y. And that is also our email at gmail.com. Feel free to email us. Check out our sources on our um, sheet pages. So look us out for next week.